Uh, this morning, though, I'd invite us to all turn in our Bibles again to 1 Timothy 3. That's where I'm going to be diving in uh, for us this morning. 1 Timothy 3, looking at spiritual leadership one more time. And this will be our last time, Lord willing. I say uh, it's our last time. I've got a lot in front of me, but my aim is to finish up this morning and then to begin Hebrews as our next area of study. I've been promising that a long time. I'm going to make good on it. But, uh, but I really sensed at the end of our spiritual leadership series that it was important for us to think about spiritual or our spiritual health, our church health series, that it was important for us to look at spiritual leadership one more time at a deeper level because we are going to be affirming deacons and deaconesses in the coming weeks. And we need to be a church Kind of like when you think of uh, military services, we all have different gifts, different varieties of ways that we can serve, and our battleground is fighting for souls. We're fighting the good fight of faith, and we need to select good officers, we need to use our spiritual gifts in a wide variety of ways, and we need to recognize that we need to be led by the right people, we need to have spiritual leadership, even in the diaconate in terms of service, to be modeled for all to see. And then you individually all have spiritual gifts. And I've been emphasizing that through this series, that the Bible, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 and uh, other places, 1 Corinthians 12, 11, it, it says that you're empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So you all have spiritual gifts. Whether you realize it or not, you are sort of God's package that he has created. And he's promised to give you one gift. We can identify that in scripture. When you became a Christian, you at least have one. But my guess is that you have a variety of gifts that are interlaced together, almost like God using um, a palette and he's painted you with great artistry to be the person that you were to be in both speaking gifts and serving gifts, which, whichever way that tips on the scales of who God has made you to be. And so over these last few weeks, I have encouraged you, and I hope that you've taken some time to soul search and to think and to ask the Lord, how am I supposed to be used in this church? We have kind of a smaller crowd this morning. This is a bit of a family meeting, a bit of a pull you into the family room time for me to say, listen, maybe you're the people in the church that are going to serve the rest of the church as it comes this fall. And you're going to ignite a flame and a passion of service here where people can see that God is here, that God is truly in our midst. We've looked at uh, the qualifications list pretty closely in terms of uh, what God's word says the standard is for serving as an elder. We've begun looking at the qualifications of a deacon. And I would say this, if you look at 1 Timothy 3, please recognize that these qualifications are a standard for all Christians, for all Christians, especially when you begin to understand that the deacon role, as we interpret and apply it here, is for men and women. These qualifications for are for all of you to strive for in holiness and in godliness. And 
as God is using you and as he is qualifying you and growing you in these qualifications, he would use you even more. And so look at this as an examination um, process for you to say, Lord, where am I falling short? What things do I need to shore up or give up or add to my life by the power of the Holy Spirit to be used in a greater way in his local church? Listen, this is your current mission. Just like if you were given a mission in military service, a tour of duty, this is your current tour of duty. Do you understand that? This is where he's providentially placed you in time and space. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the outermost parts of the earth all need to be reached with the gospel of Christ. He reaches people through your mouths and through your actions, both when you're in church community and when you're outside in the world. And he's designed it beautifully this way where the panoply of gifts and giftedness can be on display to say, God is here in Anchorage. And so as you look at this, don't just look at this and say, oh, well, I'm not going to be that leader or this leader. You're all leading. You're all leading either really well or really poorly, but you're all leading. But we need to lead by the power of the Holy Spirit with the investment of the Holy Spirit in our lives where we know and see that God is using us in our variety of ways with gifts. And as we've studied through the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, eldership and overseer or being a pastor, it's to be blameless, it's to be a one-woman man, it's to be sober-minded, self-controlled and respectable, it's to have a seriousness about you, not a pretentiousness, not an offishness, not believing you're better than somebody else, but a sobriety about the mission, a self-control, a God's control in your life where you are hospitable, where you're a sharer, where you're a giver, where you're a risk taker with your resources. You're able to teach. You care about the word of God. You're a word person. You might not have the gift of teaching, but we're all commanded to give the word of God out and make disciples. So at some level, teaching needs to be a part of your life and you need to be taught not to be a drunkard, to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, not by outside substances, not to be violent, not to be pugnacious, not to be quarrelsome. You're not a bully. You're a person who lets God work for you. God will fight your battles. You're not a lover of money. You're not consumed with things. You're not consumed with what you have or what you don't have. And you manage your household well as a testimony of God's little church that, like with the art of parenting, you're concerned about because you want your testimony to work from the inside out where then you are concerned about God's big church and how you fit in there in the family of God. And some of you who have um, some sad stories in your life about parenting, you have to realize God is still with you. God is still on your side. Your story is not over yet, right? It's not. It's not. And you continue to grow. You continue to pray. You continue to reach. And, and God is in charge of those details. You're not a new convert. If you're in leadership, you have to recognize where you are spiritually, whether as First John said, you're a child in the faith, you're a young man in the faith, or a father in the faith. Just be where you are and grow from where you are as the Lord is working in your life. 
Otherwise, if you try to outrun where you're supposed to be, when you're supposed to be there, you can fall into pride sins like Satan did and fall into an ensnarement and a condemnation of the devil. And by living this life, you'll be amazed at how even outsiders, listen, even the world who is supposed to hate Christ and hate Christians will also see the nobility of God's grace in your life. When the power of God is on your life, when you can say yes and amen, this is why I live, this is what I'm doing, this is where I'm going, this is my investment, this is my tour of duty, this is my life and my life offering, the world will see that and say, that's noble, that's powerful, that's reputable, that's different than the way the world operates. And we want to have that witness individually and collectively. And that's what we're talking about in terms of being healthy church. We're going to start Hebrews. We're going to go verse by verse. We may be there for, you know, the next six months or six years. I don't know, but we'll, we'll be there for a while. But this is not just a house of exposition. It is that. It is a word place. And I want you to be edified and I want you to be teaching and I want us to be word people, people of the book. But we also have to be doers of the word and not hearers only, right? And not just doers for our own sanctification's sake, our own family's sake, but for the family of God's sake. And I think this has been a missing message here at Anchorage, here in our church. We need to rally as a church now together, even with the the smaller group here this morning, if this group fires up. And we're like, you think of this like an evening church service, you know, where you have the the smaller group that comes back. If this group becomes the core group that brings the testimony of Christ, then when everybody comes back, they're going to be like, wow, you're, you're on fire. You know, what, what, what are you, why are you asking me about my life? What is different here about this place? And that's what I believe the Lord's message is to us this morning. We're looking at verse eight at first Timothy three this morning. Let's pick up there. It says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. We're talking about deacons, and we explored that last week, that the diaconate comes from the word serve, comes from the word minister. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That word serve is deacon. He came to serve, came to give. He's the ultimate leader and example for us. So you're called to serve. You're called to be part of this movement. Even if you are not affirmed as a deacon or deaconess at this stage in your life or maybe ever in your life, we're all on the hook to serve. We're all on the hook as the New Testament uh, displays it. The deacon is like a, is like a galley slave, an under rower, those who would row down in the hull of the ship to keep it going. We're called to esteem others higher than ourselves. We're called to wash the feet of the disciples. We're called to sit at the far end of the table. We are called to a life of service, of being deacons. Philippians 1.1, the overseers and the deacons, they're in the church. 
they're collective. There's a plurality of deacons that are raised up in the church. As we're going to see um, later in verse 11, the women are the deaconesses. That's how I take uh, the phrase, their wives. They're the deaconesses. They're the women of the church that are set apart in a unique way. Romans 16.1, Phoebe, a deaconess of the church at Centuria. 1 Timothy 3.8 and 11, introduce an office that is a powerful one. A lot of times the deacons of the church have... Uh, become sort of a misconstrued office, a male-only office where the senior pastor is leading everything and making all the decisions and kind of the senior leader only. And so by de facto, the men deacons come around him and, and hold him accountable to operations with money and HR and management. But that's not what we're talking about here. That's not the biblical model. The biblical model is for men and women to be set apart in a plurality as a group to promote word ministry. Acts chapter 6 speaks of this because in proto or in the origination of this office, the apostles needed people to come and serve to free them up for the ministry of the word and prayer. And this carried into the New Testament church so that the elders could be set apart as men apt to teach, apt to shepherd the flock of God, to pastor the flock and pray for the flock. And so they needed official servants to come in and free word ministry up. And what is so beautiful and I think so important in the church is to understand that just as in Acts 6 throughout all the New Testament, the diaconate, those who are called to serve men and women as deacons are really promoting a single thing, a single point, and that is unity within the church. They're promoting word ministry. They're the armor bearers, the squires in the great medieval picture of warfare where they're bearing armor to the swordsmen, to the knights, and they're working collectively as a unit for great effectiveness, for the church to be a powerhouse. And without a strong diaconate, without strong set-apart servants in the church, something is missing. Something is incredibly lost and should not be. So what are the deacons of the church? Look again, look at verse 8. We're going to look at the qualifications. It says, deacons likewise must be dignified. Dignified. Don't miss the word dignified here. Gravitas. Seriousness. To be a deacon. You say, well, what gives? Shouldn't deacons be those who kind of get together, you know, and they throw darts and eat chicken wings and then they talk about some of the business of the church and serve and set some chairs up and have fun? Look, I'm no killjoy. I enjoy all of those things. I enjoy fellowship and fun and we need to have fun. We need to be family together. But there should be, and there, this is lost in the, de the deaconship in churches in general. There should be a great, seriousness, a great sobriety, a great call to dignity in terms of being a deacon. You should wield that office well as a deacon or a deaconess. Why? Why? Why the gravitas? Is this superficial pretense? What, what does this mean? Well, if you look at 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, look over there, just over on your left side of your Bible probably. Look over there. 
It says, first of all, then, I, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high places, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, and, what's the word here? Dignified in every way. Why? Okay, first of all, Paul is saying all of you Christians are to be seeking a dignified life, a serious life. Now, the seriousness comes in light of the call to pray. We're to pray for all different kinds of leaders. We pray for governing authorities. We should pray for first responders. We should pray for those who are protecting us, those who are governing us, those who are Christians, and those who are not Christians who are in governing positions. All of those things are part of what we should regularly do. And we do so because we realize that God is working through these officers to give us peace, to give us peace, even immediate peace. But there's something even greater than that in terms of why we should, le- why we should take this so seriously and be godly and dignified. Look at verse 3. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Don't miss this connection. Why are we serious? Are we serious just about keeping our life quiet and safe? Is that why we're serious? No. We, we enjoy peace. We enjoy health if you have it. We enjoy safety if you have it. We pray for those things. But on a deeper level, what's good and pleasing to God is is that he is a savior. He has saved us and he will save other people through church, through our witness, through the gospel. And there's a dignity in that. Again, as a deacon, you are promoting church ministry, which is a saving ministry. You should view this house as a life-saving station where people around us are drowning and need to be saved. And that's the dignity of service. Why do we come early? Why do we stay late? Why do you set up chairs? Why do you hand out a bulletin? Why do you come to a a deacon subcommittee meeting and and think through how to promote more deacons? I mean, why, why do we do these things? Why do we create prayer ministries? Why do we have Bible studies? It's so people can be saved and be sanctified. It's so that there's depth and so that there's breadth. That's the mission and ministry. That's what everything always comes back to. Paul is not trying to open up a church community center movement in the world. We're not here as community centers. This is not a rec center. I mean, we could throw the chairs out and we could play ping pong this morning. I would enjoy that maybe. But, but listen, the reason we're gathered, the reason we worship, the reason we try, the reason we give is so that people's hearts can change. So that they can go from dark to light so they can know Christ. And that's why you would serve. That's why you would Give. That's what's pleasing, verse 3, in the sight of God our Savior. And so your seriousness or your lack thereof is either an attraction towards the saving mission or a distraction from the saving mission. All right, number two, not double-tongued, not double-tongued, not dialogos, not speaking out of both sides of your mouths. This is an easy sin to fall prey to, to be double-tongued. 
Matthew 5, 36 is where Jesus said, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. James 5, 12, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now listen, making a promise or making an oath is not sin in and of itself. God himself swore against his own name. He, according to Hebrews 6.13, made a promise to Abraham and swore by himself. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. So obviously, the example of making a promise is founded in Scripture. So what is condemned here? What's wrong is when we're careless with our promise. What's wrong is when our yes is not yes and our no is not no. But we're duplicitous, saying one thing and doing another. It's the accusation of being insincere, not being sincere, not being a man or woman filled with integrity. Deacons, deaconesses, again, are not slots that are to be filled. They are men and women who are exemplifying the dignity of the office, who are modeling what Christian service looks like, and who have spiritual integrity. Verse 8, again, thirdly, not addicted to much wine. Uh, In the original language, it does say not much wine. Paul told Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach. So this is not a outright prohibition against alcohol or the consumption of fermented drink. At the same time, it is the echo of not being a drunkard, which is found in verse 3 for the elder. You can't be controlled by other substances. Codependency is out because... Spirit-filled people, which are not just pastors, elders, overseers, but deacons and deaconesses, Christians, spirit-filled Christians are controlled by the Holy Spirit. They are putting themselves not under substances for control to get through, but they are putting themselves under the power of the Holy Spirit. His control, our control, is by Christ, his control in our lives. I won't belabor that. I I went pretty deep in the um, verse 3 explanation under eldership, so let's move on. Not greedy for dishonest gain. Why is that brought up? That's brought up because the sin of Judas Iscariot is always live within the church. People are always tempted to leverage goods and services or actual money or, or to bilk the system because it's there. Whenever you have a nonprofit organization where people are not watching it as a for-profit um, institution, there's vulnerability there. And so there needs to be good moral accountability, good checks and balances in this regard. But what is the ultimate check and balance against being uh, a money grubber or an extortionist or somebody who's, who's taking money, a thief? Well, the opposite of that is being content, right? Is killing the sin of greed, which is always live, I think, in all of our hearts. We have to die to greed. We have to die to self. We have to die to the desire to want more than what God has given us for our lot in this life. He's given us 
our daily needs, and that kind of daily focus is what's helpful for us so we do not fall into the temptation of dishonest gain. Godliness and contentment is always the antidote. All right, next, number five. They must, this is verse nine, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. I want to camp here for a second. Deacons, deaconesses, you say, well, I'll be one of those because I'm never going to be caught dead having to stand up and teach. I would never want to do this. And listen, you don't have to ever want to teach. You don't have to ever teach, but God may call you to a teaching role, even as a deacon or deaconess. You might be preaching one day up here as a deacon. It, it, there's no rules against that. If you have a teaching gift, you should use it, even as a deacon or deaconess. But I will say this for sure. Doctrine and your doctrine matters if you are a deacon or a deaconess or as a Christian in general. Why do I say this? Well, the verb use here is a present active participle. It's you're holding on to the mystery of the faith, meaning you're not allowed to just let it go. Okay, I believe this as a children, as a child, when, I, when we were children, this is what I believed. And so I'm assuming 20 years later, I still believe the same thing that I believed back then. Now, it doesn't work that way. There, there's slippage. There are things that are happening. There are influences with the world, flesh, and devil, and ideologies that are always counterintuitive to true Orthodox teaching. Whatever is evangelical in you, whatever is Orthodox in you, is always vulnerable to the lies of your flesh. Your flesh will want things, and so your flesh will, by its very nature, want to compromise truth to open the door for you to be able to do or have something that you should not have. Compromise is always there. Blindnesses are always encroaching. The blinders of this world, the spiritual glaucoma comes in on your pupils where you don't see clearly anymore. Hopefully this is why you're here today to hear preaching so that you can be shaken awake again once a week, at least once a week, where you hear the word of God and say, yes and amen, that's true. I can't think that way because your spiritual life is not static. Perhaps I'll say this. Perhaps you had bad orthodoxy, bad teaching as a child, and maybe your teaching, your training, and your doctrine needed to change over the years. And where you were is where you aren't now, and that's a good thing. You don't want it to be static in that sense either. You don't want to be locked down into something that is wrong. You needed, like me, I needed to grow. I needed to refine. I needed to change from what I did believe as a child, most of which was orthodox and right, but it needed to expand and grow and deepen and lock in at a greater level. Doubts will deceive us. What does he mean, the mystery of the faith, the Greek word mysterion? Is that talking about some sort of esoteric experiential religion? Much of Christendom is given over to experientialism and vain repetitions where people are whooped up and wooed away into sort of strange hypnotics where they are losing themselves instead of gaining Christ and gaining truth. And you have to watch out for that. Well, that's not what the mystery of the faith means here. The word mystery in the New Testament is a word that is always used in the Bible to um, define a truth that earlier was not yet fully revealed. 
something that was predicted or prophesied of that ultimately became clearer through progressive revelation. Through the coming of Christ, for instance. Think of Christ and all of the messianic prophecies, whether Psalm 2, Psalm 22, Genesis 3.15, the earliest prophecy and prediction of the coming Christ, the seed of the woman. That's Christ. That's Genesis 2. Well, how clear was that? That was under a veil of mystery until Christ came literally, physically, fully God, fully man, in the infant babe in Bethlehem. All the references in the Old Testament, I looked them up, just Googled them, and just thinking about all the different nuanced references to Bethlehem as a location, a geographic location, that means nothing if you don't understand that he literally was born there. Uh, There's references to Bethlehem in Genesis, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, Psalms, and Micah, and other places. Bethlehem is there, but in the Gospels we see Jesus literally came to be born in Bethlehem in a manger. And that was mysterious. It was under mystery, and then it became clear to us. And that's the mystery of the faith. Look down in 1 Timothy 3, uh, under verses 14 and through the end of this chapter, Paul was talking about coming soon. He was saying, if I delay, I want to teach you, Timothy, how to lead the household of God. It's the pillar and support of the truth. And then he crescendos at the end of this chapter by speaking of what he calls the mystery of godliness. This was the gospel. It was all just like this, you know, charged bomb in the Old Testament ready to explode, right? All the C4 is packed in, all the prophecies, all the ceremonial law, all of the law and the prophets are pointing to Christ and then boom, Christ came. And this explosion is Paul's doxology in verse 16. It says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He's speaking of Christ. This is the gospel. This is all of Christ summarized. He, Christ, was manifested in the flesh, born fully God, fully man, manifested there in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. He grew up, right, 30 years. He goes into the Jordan River. The Holy Spirit descends upon him, the vindication of God's voice, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, right? Vindicated in the Spirit. This is the gospel, seen by angels. He was seen at the birth At the manger, he was seen at the resurrection. He's not here, he's risen. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. The gospel was going out through Christ, through the church, to the nations, believed on in the world. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, taken up in glory. What is that? That is the mystery of godliness. That's the gospel. Now, is that mysterious to us? Is that some, ooh, I don't really understand it all the way. No, no. We get it. We know this story. We see in our mind's eye these truths clear, objectively, and powerfully. And this is what deacons and deaconesses are supposed to hold on to. Why is that? Well, if you're serving and you're serving out of some other motivation, some other reason, out of greed, out of, uh, out of being a you know, double-minded man, unstable in all your ways, if you're serving just out of some sort of guilt, out of some sort of slot-filling, need-filling desire or some kind of performance. That's not hanging on to truth. That's not living 
and guarding and governing and, and unifying gospel work through ministry service. Paul wants to take the cap off of that and says you have to do it with a clear conscience. You have to serve with a clear conscience. You don't serve out of some grudging spirit. You don't serve because, well, nobody else would do it, so I'll do it. You don't do that. You serve with joy in your heart. 1 Corinthians 4.1, um, Paul said that, you know, in verse 4, I am not aware of anything against myself, but I, there, I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. He served with a clear conscience because he knew the Lord was in charge of his conscience. God himself. And then verse 10. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Tested first. This word testing is a New Testament word that depicts the smelting fire. It's the idea of a um, refiner's fire. It's the word dokimos. It's smelting is a, this is a quote, process of applying heat to ore in order to extract out base metal It is a form of extractive metallurgy. It's used to extract many metals from from their ores, including silver and iron and copper and other base metals. Smelting uses heat and the chemical reducing agent to decompose the ore, driving off the other elements as gases or slag and leaving the metal base behind. Serving, whether as a deacon, a deaconess, or just in the church, is a part of a refiner's fire ministry. You say, I thought I was just signing my name to a clipboard. Well, if that is your heart and that's as far as it's going, then perhaps that's all you really are doing. But perhaps there's something more going on. Maybe there's a spiritual test in your life where God is saying serve and you say, I'm not ready. But maybe I'm ready. Okay, I'll put my foot in the shallow end of the pool and I'll step in and start to serve. And as you serve, there's a testing process, a proving process where you go farther and farther and farther and deeper and deeper and deeper in your commitment to serve in the church, in the body of Christ. And you serve and God, through the ministry of service, does this. He vindicates you. Not for your own sake, not for your own glory, but somebody says, you know, I've been watching you. I'm blessed by your service. I know it's behind the scenes. I know it's not for your own glory, but you're serving. I'm seeing God's grace in your life, and perhaps you need to serve in a greater capacity. You know the parable where God, um, who he puts in charge of a little, that person who's faithful with a little gets to do much more, right? You don't hide it under a bushel. You don't bury your talent. You invest it. And when you invest it, God multiplies it and gives you more and more opportunities for his glory. It's proving and testing. And this is a verse that has some hidden grace in it because what it's saying is that you might not be qualified to be a deacon as yet, but if you are serving and you're working through this tested process, you serve as, as a deacon if you prove yourself blameless. That means that you can, in fact, 
prove yourself to be blameless. You say, I'm not blameless right now. Well, you might not be blameless right now, but you might be blameless in years to come. Do you understand that? Blameless is dealing with and working through the issues of your life where no one can bring a reproach against you now. And so you say, well, how do I work through that process? Perhaps it's just by starting to serve and opening up and letting God pull things out in your life and grow you in grace and put you back together again. And then you're blameless. But blamelessness is not perfection. It is the direction of your life. It's the grace of God in your life as you serve him. Let's move to the women, the office of women in verse 11. It says their wives. Again, there's no qualification list for the wives of elders. So I don't think that there's a qualification list for wives of deacons. I think their wives is implied. There's no possessive um, word here in the original language. Uh, It's just gunikos, which says women. If you were to read this straight from the Greek, it would just say, women likewise must serve or must be dignified. The word likewise is pointing back to the former qualifications that also apply to these women who are set apart in this way. And these women are to qualify in regards to these particular temptations that can come up in the life of a woman set apart to serve. First of all, they must be dignified, verse 11. It's a call to seriousness. It's a banner theme. It's likewise. And there's a seriousness. Again, the gravitas of being an elder, of being a deacon, and being a deaconess should not be underestimated. Sobriety and seriousness. You say, that sounds like being a cosmic killjoy. It's not. It's not. There is a time to be serious in life. There's a time to take things seriously and there's great satisfaction in the Lord as you let the Lord lead and it's not about you and you're self-effacing and you're serving behind the scenes and you feel the weight of what you're doing. That's what's called for here. Second, not slanderers. The original language here is the word diabolus. It means don't be a devil. That can sound very harsh for women, right? Don't be a diabolus. In other words, don't be someone who is wrongly accusing people of other things. Why is the word devil here used for a translation on accuser? Well, Satan is the great accuser, is he not? I just looked those verses up just thinking about how appropriate it is that we, none of us, no Christian needs to be a diabolus, a devil-like person. Proverbs says, making accusations separates intimate friends. We need to not do that. Job 1.9, Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? He was accusing Job to the Lord. Zechariah 3.1 is where Joshua, the high priest, is standing before the angel of the Lord. This is not Joshua who took, who took over for Moses. This was the high priest. This was the man of God who represented the holiness of Israel when they were going back to rebuild the temple. And the picture there in Zechariah 3 is Joshua is standing there with filthy rags and Satan is sitting right there in the court of heaven saying, look at those filthy rags. And the angel of the Lord comes who is Christ himself and removes those filthy rags and robes him with the righteousness of Christ. That's Zechariah 3. But as that's happening, it says Satan's standing at the right hand to accuse him. Revelation 12.10, 
The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. He's creating doubt in people. That's what Satan tries to do. Titus 2.3 reflects the same command for women. Older women likewise are to be reverent. There's seriousness in behavior. Not slanderers. Not diabolus. Number three, sober-minded We've hit on that quite a bit, but also look at this, faithful in all things. Verse 11, faithfulness. This is the accolade of a Christian that you want. How do you know the power of God is in a place? I read this in the uh, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church book by Mark Dever, and I liked it. I've been in his church in Washington, D.C. It's a good church. And he said, what reflects true spirituality more? A house where everyone is manifesting supernatural gifts and whooping up in you know, a frenzied way. Or a house where young, young adults are all coming to honor a senior saint whose funeral service is being held of a man or woman who's lying there as a testimony of God's grace of a life well lived in service for decades. What gives a greater witness of the power of God? I think faithfulness. Now look at verses 12 and 13. We pan back out from just deacons and deaconesses to deaconship as a whole. It says, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. Speaking of the men, one woman men, just like 1 Timothy 3 verse 2 and managing their household, their children, and their household well, taking care of their little church. Why? Why does this affirmation come in verse 13? It says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith as in Christ Jesus. What's, what's he talking about here? Is he talking about serving for personal glory? Not at all. If you look at the text carefully, It says, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Your good standing as a deacon or deaconess is all for the glory of Christ. There's no greater gift in Christian spirituality than feeling like you're in the center of God's will, doing what he wants, with great confidence, recognizing that God has put you right in the place that you're supposed to be. You're living your life for his glory. You are not, as John Piper puts it, wasting your life. You're giving your life. You're being spent, expending yourself for God's glory, for God's grace. And you feel that, but it's not about you at the same time. You're gratified in that. You love that. You know that God loves you. You know he's using you. But you know that it's all splashing back on him. That's what Paul is wrapping up saying here. God gets the credit. This is the motivational focus. It's Christ alone. If you try to serve in your own strength, you'll try to have your pluses outweigh your minuses. And guess what? You'll be miserable. Let's do it the other way. Let's serve for God's glory. What happens when we do that? And I'm going to open up a little bit of a theological can of worms to make my point, but I don't know a better verse, a couple verses to do it in than 1 Corinthians 23 and following. 
What happens when a church of 400, we had 400 people here last week. What happens when a church of 400 um, serves in this way? What happens when you have a, a church of 400 deacons and deaconesses? 1 Corinthians 14 shows the powerhouse effect. Look at 1 Corinthians 14, 23. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Well, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is talking about the gifts, specifically some gifts that I believe uh, ceased during the apostolic age or at the end of the apostolic age. They were sign gifts like the gift of tongues. Tongues is a gift called glossolalia in the original languages, or in the original language, which means known languages. The use of tongues is a majorly controversial issue, and I realize that, recognize that people fall out on different um, sides with that. If you look at the immediate context of 1 Corinthians 14, 21, Paul is actually rebuking the Corinthians for a misuse of early church tongues in 1 Corinthians. I believe they were speaking in a show-off capacity that he was trying to quiet down within the church. And it was throwing the church into confusion. Acts 2 speaks of the first use of tongues, which was known languages. It was the ceremony of Pentecost. You had people who were making their Jewish pilgrimage home where they, through the diaspora, had been spread out through to become Medes and Aliamites and Parmenites. Um, Parthamenians and Mesopotamians and Egyptians and Cyrenians and Romans, but they were all of a Jewish descent, but they spoke their common language. But when they came back at Pentecost and the Holy Spirit came, the disciples were speaking in their languages and they were understanding their languages and they thought something crazy was going on and it was. It was a supernatural display from God where he, on one hand, was rebuking the Jews by saying, you missed it with Christ. You rejected the Messiah. That's the reference to Isaiah 28, 11, and 12. At the same time, it was promoting gospel world evangelism where the gospel was going out into every language around the world. That was the sign gift of tongues, which I think died off or ceased itself, 1 Corinthians 13, 8, with the death of the last apostle. I don't think, I think Revelation 22 with... John, where he says, don't add or take away from Revelation, applies here by implication, saying that there's not a need for tongues anymore. At the same time, don't miss the point of 1 Corinthians 14. That was just a sidebar to sort of clear the decks for a minute. And everybody go, "Ah," but don't miss the point because this is the point of the sermon. This is the point of the sermon series. This is the point of the summer. Why do we want to be a healthy church? Why do we want to be a church of 400 ministers? Look at verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 14. But if all prophesy, translate that, if all are speaking in a known language, where everybody is like today speaking English, or everybody's speaking Koine Greek together back then, then an unbeliever or outsider enters and he is convicted by all and he is called to account. What's going on here? Well, again, 1 Corinthians 14, 23, if everybody is speaking in um, sort of show-off fashion, uh, their own different language, just to whoop up the crowd, then unbelievers or outsiders are going to come in and be confused. They're going to go, what's going on? I don't really, this, this hype doesn't even measure up to the hype that I had last night at a party or something out in the world. But if by contrast... 
if an unbeliever or an outsider comes in and sees the church loving and serving one another, building one another up in the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 14, 5, building one another up, edifying one another, then that person is convicted by all. He's called to account by all. And look at verse 25. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. If you want a testimony of God's presence here, you have to serve God for his glory. Use your gift. You have a speaking gift or a serving gift, or a serving gift, and a speaking gift, or some variety of that. You're a kaleidoscope of gifts. Use your gifts for the glory of God as doers and speakers. Because in doing so, people will recognize that God is truly in this place.